Hi, my name's Amber Blair, and we're back with Dermcast TV. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Robert Sidbury, professor in the Department of Pediatrics and chief of the Division of Dermatology at Seattle Children's. He's taken the time to come talk to us today about atopic dermatitis. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's begin by the talking about the basics and daily moisture and skin care and how important that is in our education to our patients with atopic dermatitis. Well, it's amazingly important. And one thing we know from studies is that children with atopic dermatitis lose water through their skin at abnormal rates. Their transepidermal water loss is really high. And you can sometimes see that in kids who have eczema in areas especially where there's wetting and drying, babies who drool, um, places that stay moist all the time like the axillary vaults or in the diaper areas oftentimes do better. So constant moisture is good, uh, wetting and drying is bad, and there's a lot of confusion about how to get there from parents. Um, some think that bathing's good, some think that bathing's bad depending on who they've talked to and what they've read, and it's important to realize that Bathing and moisturizing are linked. If you bathe, you should moisturize immediately afterwards. If you don't bathe, you should still moisturize a time or two a day. So the moisturizing piece is the constant, and I get less hung up in bathing as an imperative once a week or once a day. Um, it's really how it's paired with moisturizing afterwards that's important for me. Very interesting. As you're educating these patients, are there any other specific pearls that you instruct them to do on a daily basis? Yeah, for sure. For instance, with bathing, there's um, a lot of times um, kids will, even if they use moisturizers at all, they sometimes will not put them on right away. They'll run around, they'll play. And so what I'll get kids, if they're old enough to sort of buy into the program and listen to the parents, so I'll explain to them how our fingertips will raisin up in a bath or a shower, because it happens to all of us, of course, if we're in there long enough. And I'll say, bathe long enough for your fingertips to turn into raisins and then get out, pat dry, and get something on, preferably a good moisturizer or one of the medications you've been prescribed if appropriate, before those fingertips unraisin. And then that moisture that you've obtained from the bath, that hydration that causes that thicker skin on your hands to wrinkle up, stays there rather than evaporates and wets and dries because that's where the idea that bathing is bad for eczema comes from, is if you bathe but don't moisturize, it can actually be drying. Do you find there to be a significant clinically relevant association with food allergies in these patients? Goodness, that's a uh, fodder for an hour-long interview, um, but it's a really important question. And so what I will say to parents in the most digested, uh, no pun intended, of versions of this discussion is food allergies can be relevant but they also sometimes are not. And so what I will say is take a good history. Providers should start there. And if a history suggests a reproducible, reliable reaction to foods, then for sure that's one you need to either avoid, test to prove, or track down in one way, shape, or form. If parents say, you know, I just don't know, I maybe, maybe not, but no documented reaction has ever been seen, then what I'll encourage them to do is to focus on skincare first, including what we just talked about with regard to bathing and moisturization. Don't change their diet. Come back a month later or whatever the interval the provider's most 
comfortable with. And then if they're a lot better, a lot of those allergy questions just sort of drift away because they see their kid get better knowing they haven't changed their diet. And so they're like, well, you know what? It, it probably isn't related. So that's probably the best sort of digested version of uh, how to approach food allergies with uh, relationship to atopic dermatitis. As terrible of a disease process as atopic dermatitis is, it's a pretty exciting time to have this disease. There's a lot of different things currently available from a treatment standpoint and a pretty robust pipeline. Talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on that. Yeah, you, you are totally right. It's, um, you know, I started as an attending in the year 2000. And in that year, there were two molecules that came out, one called pimecrolimus or Elidel, one called tacrolimus or protopic, which we're all familiar with as non-steroidal options for atopic dermatitis that do work. And we've had them now for 17 or 18 years. Well, in between those two and let's say around um, 2017, there were no new molecules at all no novel molecules produced for atopic dermatitis, which was frustrating for all of us. But in the last two years, there's been one new topical product uh, now available called Eucrisa. Uh, the generic name is Crisabarol, um, and one uh, systemic medication. Uh, the Crisabarol is for mild to moderate patients, and then a systemic medication uh, called Dupilumab or Dupixent for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Um, and those are just fabulous to have. What's even more exciting is if you look at the pipeline, um, it's just amazing what's coming down the pike. So I don't think we're gonna have to wait another 17 years for something to follow it. That's very exciting for us as clinicians and our patients as well. This is a, a disease process that definitely has some comorbidities associated with it. Talk to me a bit about that. Yeah, that's right. Um, the sort of classic comorbidities associated with atopic dermatitis are the so-called atopic march, which is food allergies and uh, eczema as a baby, asthma as a child, and hay fever or rhinoconjunctivitis as an adult. And we've known about those for a long time. Some kids will sort of march through all of those, the so-called atopic march, and get those in order uh, throughout their lifetimes. Others just will get one or the other, uh, but not all. What we've learned more recently is that there may be some other comorbidities that can be associated as well. Uh, and just in, gosh, I think the last 10 years, there have been maybe 20 or more associations published uh, with atopic dermatitis. Now, that's where the question is, are they real? Are they causal? Uh, what are the details of those? And so what I've tried to do is sort of focus on the ones that have the most evidence at this point in terms of what I take to my clinic. Um, the one in particular that I have been focusing more on lately is ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Uh, if you see kids, you see kids with ADHD. It's very common. Um, and the reason that I think it's quite interesting is that kids with ADHD present how? They're fidgety in school, they're restless, they can't focus. Kids with bad eczema who don't sleep well present how, they're restless, they're fidgety in school. And so we've got this condition, eczema, with this really common side effect, if you will, which is sleep loss and the consequences of sleep loss. And therefore we see them and we have teachers telling us, oh, they're not focusing, they're not. And we have this ready explanation. Oh, of course, they've got eczema, they're not sleeping well. Well, I think we've now seen enough literature, not only in the United States population, but a Danish cohort, a Taiwanese cohort, uh, telling us that even if you control for sleep, even if you control for age and 
everything else you can think of, it seems that if you have atopic dermatitis, you are at greater risk for developing ADHD. And I think knowing that is helpful because if you see that patient before you who you previously would have said, oh, of course, you're losing sleep, isn't that it? You may think that and you may be right, but you may also have in the back of your mind, what if it's something else? What if they've got a separate diagnosis that's treated differently that I, as a dermatologist, can put on the radar screen of their pediatrician to follow up on and maybe make a huge difference in that child's life? So that's one. Another one that doesn't have quite the literature base to support it, but I think you can think of in a similar way as anemia, because how does anemia present? Kids are pale, kids are sort of drawn, kids are tired. You know, how does a kid who doesn't sleep well because of their eczema present? They're sometimes pale, they're sometimes drawn, they're sometimes not uh, sleeping well, and so they're tired at school. So it's another thing that I think that we as providers in our clinic with a patient before us who's presenting with those symptoms can say, okay, well, maybe it's sleep loss, maybe it's eczema, let's focus on that for sure, but maybe it's something else, and maybe it's something if other things add up, maybe we check a CBC, maybe we see if you need an iron supplement, maybe it's something else. So that's what I like most about thinking of these new comorbidities is to sort of keep them in mind when we've got a ready explanation without having to invoke that comorbidity. Uh, I just think it's really important not to miss things like that if we can. Those were all very excellent pearls and very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. From Dermcast TV, this is Amber. Thank you for viewing.